And I want to welcome you if you're new to the church. Welcome to our Wednesday night midweek service. We've been moving through the book of Genesis, and we happen now to be in Genesis 42. And we are looking at a series called Joseph's Journey, really his journey of faith wrapped in grace. And uh, that's what his story is all about. Kind of use that code of many colors to talk about the multifaceted uh, uh, nature of God's grace. And we're going to continue tonight as we move into chapter 42. Let's see if this, why does it, I don't know why it always does that. <laughs> ah, there it goes. Okay, so if you have your Bible, hold a place in Genesis 42 and go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. So tonight, uh, in the, the category of this particular section that we're tackling, which is all about the life of Joseph, we're going to look at a message I've entitled Joseph's Test. Joseph's Test, and it's going to be about a test that he gives his brothers, but it's a test also of himself. It's going to go both ways. And ultimately, you could see an overarching test that's going to be from God for all of them. James chapter 1, look at verse 2. James 1, 2. And those rowdy teenagers are up there having a great time. <laughs> and I will say a word. I'll tell you what. When I was hearing, the whole team is awesome, but when Sarah was singing, I think it was that second song, my heart, I was just ready to cry. I don't know. Just the Lord's just doing a wonderful work. So if you see her, just to give her a word of encouragement. Consider it all joy, my brethren, James 1, 2, when you encounter various trials. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> Let's read that again. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing, this is what you can know, that the testing of your faith produces, what does it produce? It produces patience, or some versions say endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When we enter into tests in the Christian life, and certainly God does test us, there is a fruit from testing, and the fruit is endurance or patience. Uh, I've never been uh, in a situation in life where I've really been uh, stretched uh, and uh, gained a lot by it not being hard. Uh, I do some workout videos, and the trainer in that workout video say, says they call it a workout for a reason. It's not supposed to be easy. If you're expecting you know, your faith journey to be easy, good luck, but it's not going to be. In fact, the, the times in your life where you're going to be stretched the most and be stronger are going to be times of testing. It doesn't mean they're going to be easy. If any of you have tried to diet or exercise and other uh, you know, uh, facets of your life, you know that it can be quite a challenge to just try to move forward in your life when you, when you have a big hill to climb. Joseph's been on this journey of faith, and he's been dealing with 13 years of... Uh, slavery and imprisonment and now um, his dark odyssey is going to come before us with once again a glimmer of light did i pray yet i didn't pray okay let's pray father god i just want to lift up this time to you right now in god's word in your holy word it's inspired by you lord and it's profitable how we need a word from you tonight lord so may you speak and may your servants have ears to hear 
what you'd say to your people, to your church. We just want to say we love you. Thank you for loving us first, Lord. Thank you for molding us and shaping us into the image of your glorious son. We know we are just simply jars of clay, but we, in some mysterious way, get to hold this glory within us. And we thank you that this is only really a down payment of what is ahead of us. So help us to have that faith that we need in Jesus' name. Amen. And my son got me a table. Thank you, son. I appreciate it. Okay. So Genesis 42 is where we're going to be. And so all of a sudden, this Jew is number two in Egypt. Can you believe it? He has gone from the, the prison to the palace. And it's all been God weaving together this majestic tapestry that only God can weave together. His, God's light has been shining, but Joseph has been through a lot of stuff. And when we looked at the end of Genesis uh, 41 last time, there were two children that Joseph had, and he was now, you know, number two in all of Egypt, and he was given the signet ring of the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh said, nothing's going to happen unless you approve it. Uh, you know, you're number two. And, and so he's got all these, this, this incredible stuff that's come his way. And he has two children by a wife that's given to him by the Pharaoh. And the children are given Hebrew names, which reminds us that Joseph knows who his God is. And he's going to stay faithful to that God because that God has been faithful to him. And one of his children, mean, his, the name means God has made me forget. And we talked about how sometimes, you know, we have a past and we might have a lot of struggles in our past and God has caused me to forget. And then the other child's name was God has made me fruitful. But we can say this, that even with that past behind him and now his mind has to be constantly blown by what God has done, the majesty of God's ways, 13 years isn't that long, is it? And we can replay, you know, things that have happened to us 20, 30 years ago for those of us who have hit some of those marks in life. And we can replay situations. And I wonder how many times he went back to this scene when his brothers had thrown him into the pit. We're going to learn that he was pleading for his life. He was pleading with his brothers. And they still sold him into slavery. They first wanted to kill him, and then eventually they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph is going to have this incredible moment where his brothers appear before him. And God is going to move the family now because of a famine to Joseph. And Joseph is the ruler. You could call him the second highest ruler in all the world. And this is going to be a reunion. His brothers are going to be before him, the brothers that betrayed him, the brothers that sold him into slavery. And it's going to be kind of a reunion, but it's a one-way knowledge when it first happens. He knows it's them, but they don't know it's him. And if you had, you remember that uh, program, I don't know if it's still around, but the program was called What Would You Do? And, and, the, and the premise of the program was if you were put in a certain situation, if someone was trying to steal a bike or, you know, making fun of a person or whatever it may be, what would you do? And they, they capture people in these real-life situations and they see how they would react to a given set of circumstances. What would you do if your brother's appeared before you and you're the second highest ruler in all of Egypt and you can do whatever you want to them. They come and bow before you. Do you think that Joseph had some thoughts about a future fulfillment of his dream? He had dreamed that not only, you know, some of his brothers, but they all would bow before him, including his mom and dad. And so do you think he may have had some visions of, 
you know, a future meeting that might take place and how he might handled it, handle it. You know, these brothers, uh, for 13 years, we don't, we don't really hear a whole lot about what's gone on in their conscience, but we know that they're not all great characters. There's been a lot of ugly stuff in the book of Genesis. And now they're going to come before Joseph, and it's going to be a hard meeting. And one writer says they needed an awakening of conscience. They needed to mourn. They needed to genuinely repent. The brothers desperately needed God's grace, though they did not fully know it. They're going to come before Joseph, and this meeting, as hard as it's going to be on Joseph, and ultimately when they find out on them, is going to be healing. Paul says something that's interesting in 2 Corinthians 7. If you want to take a peek over there, it's valuable to look at this. 2 Corinthians 7. He's been dealing with this Corinthian church, and uh, there's been a whole set of problems, including them personally attacking Paul. At least some of the leadership had attacked Paul. They were questioning his apostleship. Some of them seem to be making fun of his uh, speaking ability, even his looks. And in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, Paul writes these words. He says, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, 2 Corinthians 7, 8, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, we've all been there before. I didn't regret it, but I did. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, 2 Corinthians 7, 9. And now, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Sometimes God wants us to be sorrowful. We hear a lot of modern preaching that says, oh, God always wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. Look, we all appreciate that, but look, there are times when we just need to be sorrowful. You were made sorrowful uh, to the point of repentance. He says, I now rejoice uh, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. I was thinking of the famine when I thought of that, those words, suffer loss, or saw those words. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Our new lives in Christ give us opportunities to make things right, to handle things differently than we did before we became Christians, and to even make amends. Go back to Genesis chapter 42. The brothers, in their particular journey, as it, as it crosses with Joseph's, are going to have an opportunity. An opportunity is going to be placed before them, but the opportunity will be filled with pain. Some of us have pain in our past, and we have some things that may still be lingering out there, they may still be unresolved, and we might wonder, well, when is this ever going to be resolved? When will I have a chance maybe to reconcile with this person? Romans 12 says, as much as it depends upon us, we're to live, what? At peace with all people, but sometimes it's not possible, or sometimes it takes time. For Joseph, it was 13 years. For his brothers, it was 13 years. They both needed this moment, and this moment would bring healing. Sometimes the world doesn't want to hear about guilt and sin because they think if you talk about guilt and sin, somehow you're beating everybody up and condemning them. But when you talk about guilt and sin, you're talking about the reality of all of humanity. Amen? We're all guilty. The law has made us guilty before God. The book of Romans says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. This Greek word under Paul uses earlier to convey the idea of being under the law like it's a weight or a stone that's killing us. Like we're suffocating under the law. 
that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable or guilty before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In gospel preaching, we have to tell people the bad news before we can tell them the good news. Amen? Now, we might have a little different approach when we're preaching the gospel. We never water down the gospel, but we might to different audiences start at different places. But ultimately, we're going to get to the fact that humanity has a sin problem. Sin brings death, but we have a free gift, and that free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the world has to be confronted with their guilt. And sometimes when people hear preaching about their guilt, they say, that's wrong, I don't want to hear that. But there's a freedom in hearing the truth because the truth hurts, but it also heals. If these guys never had this moment, just think about this for a second. If there was never a famine and they never went back and there was never this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, what would that have done to them the rest of their lives? Some, some of them may have been worse off than others, but I think even that last encounter they had with, G, with uh, Joseph haunted them. And I think that they probably personally replayed it over and over and over again. So this would be a test for Joseph and for his brothers. And, uh, you know, really, they were at his, uh, under his powder to do whatever he wanted to do. So here's what happens now. This is 41 Uh, 4157 in Genesis, and then we'll move into chapter 42. It says, The people of all the earth, Genesis 4157, came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Now this seems to be, you know, all the guys are sitting around the table like, "Uh, I don't know, what are we going to do? I don't know. And, you know, I was hearing something on KKLA driving here, and they were sharing some stories from a village, and I didn't catch what the place is, but they interviewed a 14-year-old girl through a translator. And the 14-year-old girl said that um, every night they're hungry. They don't have enough food to eat. So they, they basically go without dinner every single night. And she said, we just sit in the house and stare at each other. And we, we, he said, she said, we can't even speak words to one another. And the only thing that... I can find to do is cry. So can you imagine being in that situation every night? Sometimes we, we whine if we have to walk to the fridge for water, right? Like, oh, I don't want to. You get it. <laughs> well, there's people in the world right now that are going to bed every night hungry. They don't know what to do. The water they drink is, you know, polluted. They have very little to eat. One family that they interviewed, the mother said they're surviving on leaves right now. She feeds her family leaves. She walks three hours in one direction just to get water for her family. And the water is not that great. And she walks three hours in the other direction with a bucket of water on her head because her husband died in the war. Now, I don't know how bad it was for um, these brothers and for dad, but it got bad enough where they're staring at at each other, maybe wondering, you know, when the end's going to come. And so dad challenges the the sons he says why are you staring at one another 42 2 he said behold i've heard that there is grain in egypt the famine has hit the whole earth now go down there and buy some for us from that place that we may live and not die let's do something so he's going to send the boys off because of god's work in joseph his interpretation of pharaoh's dreams and his subsequent elevation in egypt there was now grain enough to save the whole world including the patriarchal family 
and the messianic line. That's why the Messiah could be born, because Israel was preserved. Israel ends up going down to Egypt because of this famine, and the book of Exodus picks up this story when the Pharaoh arises that knew not Joseph. But the reason that the patriarchal family comes from Canaan to Egypt is to survive. God has used Joseph's story to provide a solution for a coming famine and to protect the line of the Messiah. That's how God's always working on many levels. And the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. So here they go, and God is fulfilling now the dream that Joseph had. Not in its entirety, but it will come to pass. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin. He was the younger brother, the last one born through Rachel. And of course, that was Jacob's true love. And he did not send Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. The loss of Joseph still stung dad, Jacob, and he was afraid. He, you know, Benjamin was the last one he had from Rachel, and so he didn't want to release Benjamin, and plus these guys didn't have a real great track record, right? He had, sold, he had sent Joseph out to them, and you know, that went very badly, and I'm not sure dad even really knew at this point everything that happened, and of course they had lied to him. So he held back Benjamin and sent the others. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain, verse 5, among those who were coming. You can imagine the people from all kinds of lands were streaming into Egypt because, you know, Joseph had not only interpreted Pharaoh's dream, but he had told the Pharaoh what to do. Save in the, the seven years of plenty, store up enough grain, and then you'll be okay in the years of famine. And so people from probably every tribe, tongue, and nation were coming, flooding into Egypt. They were coming in. The famine was also where we note in the land of Canaan, which will become the land of promise or is the land of promise will become the land of Israel. So charged by their brothers, they these the are uh, charged by their father. The brothers make the trek across what's known as the Sinai down into the Nile Valley. And never in their wildest dreams or even their worst dreams could they imagine that they would meet Joseph. One writer says if Joseph was alive, he would be an obscure slave in some household or business or uh, uh, you know, somewhere else. They were themselves awash in a sea of desperate, hungry foreigners flooding into Egypt. And uh, as they were approaching Egypt, they never could have imagined. In fact, there's implications from the language here that they believe that maybe he's already dead. They're going to say to, the, to uh, what they believe is the second highest ruler he is, but they don't know he's Joseph. Uh, one of our brothers is no more. So here they come. And uh, maybe it was easy for them, easier for them to think he was dead. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land, verse 6, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So now this not-so-much-chance meeting, but God meeting takes place. Can you imagine maybe the gasp that happened within Joseph's heart as he looked? It wasn't hard for him to recognize his brothers. After all, there were 10 Hebrew guys. They were all brothers, so they were probably similar, you know, they were similar looks, and they all had beards, right? And they're all together, and so Joseph had to gasp internally and, and be going, wow, here they are. Now, why did they not recognize Joseph? Well, Joseph was older. He went from 17 to now 30. 
He was clean-shaven. He was dressed in uh, royalty. In fact, we saw in the last chapter how the Pharaoh had dressed him in white linen, expensive linen. He had given him his uh, signet ring. He had given him a gold necklace. In, in all likelihood, Joseph looked like the Pharaoh. So if you have ever seen a picture of what a Pharaoh looked like or what his dress looked like, that's probably what Joseph looked like because he was basically the viceroy of this nation. And he had been given uh, these things by Pharaoh, even his signet ring, which spoke of authority. But Joseph looked like an Egyptian ruler. And with all these factors, the brothers don't know that it's him. And so here they come, and they are bowing before him. And immediately Joseph had to be thinking back to his dream. Remember that dream? I've had a dream. You guys are going to end up bowing before me. And here they were. Now, it would be very tempting at this point, remember with the idea of what would you do, to say, aha! <laughs> I told you, losers. <laughs> Just go ahead and stay down there and eat some dirt. I'm Joseph. <laughs> Mask comes off. But Joseph is going to hold back. He's going to play it cool. In fact, he's going to put these brothers through the paces. He's going to test them. And I think he's also going to be tested. You know, when we're in a situation where somebody ends up coming before us and we've been proven right, sometimes when we're not always thinking very spiritual, we want to do something like this. I told you. Didn't I tell you that I told you? Right? And we might be thinking, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold and Egyptian. Right? Here they are. These brothers, and think of how many nights he had where he replayed that moment where they sold him into slavery. Some of them wanted him dead. Who, who knows if they, he could be thinking, I wonder if they ever even thought about me again. I wonder if they ever thought about my sleepless nights and the rats I dealt with and the, you know, the, just the circumstances that they put me in. Man, there would be so much that you'd want to say. Maybe you just want to send a few guards in to slap them around a couple of times, right? But Joseph has his brothers bowing before him, though they don't recognize him. There's a, there's a little play here, I think, in, in a prophetic picture that I don't want to push too far, but we know that Jesus Christ, when he came to his own, his own did not recognize him. There's some prophecies, like in the book of Zechariah, that say that there will be a time when their eyes will be opened, the scales will fall, and they will mourn for Christ. They will recognize him as their Messiah. But right now, largely, there's a uh, blindness that's happened to Israel. Romans 11 talks about that. And for them to bow before an Egyptian leader was probably not their favorite thing to do. In fact, in the book of Esther, remember Mordecai does not want to bow before Haman. We think that Haman actually, is his name is actually Haman. He's from the 70s, right? Anyway, amen. But... Um, the reason that he said he wouldn't bow uh, as I revisited the book of Esther was that he was a Jew. And remember in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar sets up that 90-foot colossal statue, the, uh, the Jewish young men don't want to bow. And that, some scholars believe the statue represented Nebuchadnezzar. But 
This was hard, and Joseph is disguised to them, and they are bowing because they're in a desperate situation. And so here they come. They have bowed before Joseph. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, verse 8, although they did not recognize him. The writer wants us to make sure we've got the picture that Joseph has the upper hand in every way. What would you do if they didn't know it was you? He was now ready to handle this, and, and I think you know he's going to try to handle it in a way that is going to prove out their hearts. Um, I think you know, this is something I just want to read from my notes. It, it says, He was now ready to handle this meeting by seeing how God had worked out his plan to this point. He could better understand that God had used it all. Here's my thought. If this would have happened, uh, let's say that the brothers would have shown up while Joseph was in Potiphar's house or somehow had been able to visit him in prison, I think Joseph's attitude would have been different. It took 13 years for him finally to raise up to number two in Egypt and kind of start to put puzzle pieces together. Everybody with me? Sometimes I think God has us at a place where reconciliation can happen because we're seeing things more from heaven's perspective. If it was in the middle of this time, sometimes we say, why is it taking so long? Why isn't this prayer being answered? Why haven't I had a chance to do, you fill in the blank. And, and, and sometimes, look, Tom Petty put it well, the waiting is the hardest part, right? But, but sometimes what happens is when we're in the God's waiting room, he's doing something, and we're not ready to deal with something yet. We think we're ready, but Joseph was now more ready to see that God was working his masterpiece together. So they didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized them. And as I mentioned, he may have been anticipating this moment. We can't know for sure. If you find yourself right now in God's waiting room, can I just say, be of good cheer, hold on. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, right? So we can, we can wait and know that God is faithful. I'm sure that, J that Joseph probably replayed the why question many times, probably more times than he could count, as his brothers were kneeling there before him and he knew they didn't recognize him. He might have wanted to blurt out, why? I mean, we've all had that question come out, right? Why would you do this to me? I mean, there was so much that he had to hold back by not revealing himself, but he wanted to see their hearts. He wanted to see if there was regret. He wanted to see if they had changed. And he was going to press and fish and fish and press and test them to see their true colors. John 1.10 says, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. They did not recognize Joseph, and the world that Jesus made did not recognize him. He came to his own, this is John 1.10 through 13, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, what? The children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so Joseph remembered, verse 9, the dreams which he had had about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Now we'll find out that Joseph is speaking through an interpreter. He knows Egyptian they speak Hebrew, so he has the advantage of he knows what they say when they speak Hebrew, but they don't, they don't necessarily know everything that's going on with him. So 
Here's what he says, and we find out it's through an interpreter. You are spies. Now remember when Joseph brought back a bad report from his, about his brothers to his dad, and then dad sent him out again, and when he was coming from a distance, the brothers were out in the field, and they said, here comes that dreamer, right? And I think part of the reading between the lines here or, or seeing something that seems to be here and, and I think you, what you're going to see is a pattern is that Joseph, as he tests and presses his brothers, are gonna, he's going to put them through what he went through. And one of the first things he does is speak harshly to them, and, and he accuses them of being spies. I think that's what they thought of him. Have you come to spy for Papa, golden child? Here comes the dreamer, right? There was bitterness rising in their hearts. And so they spoke harshly to him and may have accused him of being a spy for dad. And he does the same to them. You know, life, uh, it doesn't always work this way, but oftentimes what we do to others ends up coming back to us. And we want to be careful. There are people out there that teach laws of karma and everything. Karma is not a Christian principle. But sowing and reaping is. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. God is not mocked, Galatians 6, 7. God will not be mocked. Now, we don't always end up reaping what we sow because God is gracious to us and he forgives us, but a lot of what's going to happen to these brothers is going to come back on them as a test. And here's verse 10. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Can you see Joseph going? <laughs> Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are 12 brothers in all. Now they go back to the family. They want to identify who they are so he knows. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. That's why we're only 10. And one is what? No more. And Joseph is that one. Right there when you want to say, oh, really? But again, he holds his peace. One is no more. Remember the prophecy in Jeremiah 31 that is fulfilled in Matthew 2 when Herod kills the children and it says that Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more. Now, could it be that they thought Joseph was dead? They, they say he is no more. Would it be easier for them to assume that he was dead? Possibly. Or maybe they're saying he's no more, as in he's not part of the family. But Joseph could be thinking, the reason that you've categorized me that way is because you sold me into slavery. I was away from my family for 13 years. I haven't seen my little brother. I haven't seen my dad. Can you imagine? Everything that you knew, and here you have the culprits before you. Was this a cover-up for what they had done for Joseph, for them to say he is no more? Were their consciences coming alive as they admit something about Joseph, though they don't let on, of course, everything that's happened? And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. Now, in 42.21, uh, they, would, they would not listen to Joseph's pleas. So if you look ahead for a second, just take a peek there. 
they're going to be talking to each other down in the, in the uh, text before us. And Reuben, excuse me, uh, verse 21 says, they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. So Joseph was pleading to them, please don't sell me into slavery. And they said, Pfft. in fact, the Bible says they had a meal while, they, while he was down in the pit. And now they're pleading with Joseph, we are not spies. And he what? Won't listen to them. You see, what he's doing is he's putting back on them everything that they did to him. And so he accuses them of being spies, and he says, by this you will be tested, 15. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place and yes, unless your youngest brother comes here. And I had to be looking at each other going, what? Why does he want our youngest brother to come? We just came here for grain, man. Why is this guy grilling us? What is going on? So he says, send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now Joseph's probably concerned about the welfare of his younger brother. He knows how these brothers treated him. So he's thinking, well, maybe the best way I can get Benjamin here is to, you know, get one of them to bring him back. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Can you imagine this? What, what happened again? I don't know, this ruler, man. Maybe he's having a bad day. And prison cell shuts, and there you are in the prison. And once again, Joseph is doing to his brothers what happened to him. Can you imagine when the cell door locked them thinking, we're in prison in Egypt and we may never see the homeland and our family again. They're probably going through exactly what Joseph went through. But not for three days. For Joseph, it was years. And now he gives them a little bit of time to think about and as they were in their jailhouse experience, the prison cell experience, you think they started doing some soul searching? You think they started thinking about their brother? You think maybe God was speaking to their conscience? You know, we, we know that there's been a lot of people that have had jailhouse conversions. And I'm not going to demean that because sometimes when you have a jailhouse conversion, you have no place else to go. And so they usually give out Bibles and 25-pound dumbbells. So there you go. And people start reading the Bibles. And, and there, there have been people that have been born again in prison. And they've come to realize what they've done. They have time to think. Three days in an Egyptian prison provided sufficient terror-filled time for reflection and soul-searching, for hearing the siren of their conscience blazing all around them. Can you imagine? They started to realize, hmm, there may be something more going on here. They started to think, you know, maybe God is behind all of this. We've all had those moments, right? We have a bad day. We get a flat tire and we say, I don't know what I did to deserve this, right? And sometimes when we do that, it's really nothing other than there's just, life just happens. But sometimes circumstances happen and God may be trying to get our attention. And certainly that is in the Bible. It's not always the case. But sometimes God does use these kinds of things. So Joseph said to them, on the third day, do this 
and live, for I fear God. So he's giving them a little taste of prison, but he's saying, do this and live. Do what I asked you. Go get your younger brother. And then he had to stun them. He's an Egyptian pharaoh. The Egyptian or he's second in line to the pharaoh. We're believed to be gods themselves. And he says, I fear Elohim. They had to be a little stunned by that. You fear God? The one true God? Hmm, interesting. He says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. Uh, but as for you, for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households. So he says, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll leave one behind. Just, just a side note. Some of you, this, this stuck out to you. Do this and live is really what the Torah, parts of the Torah say, and Jesus said this in Luke 10, 28. None of us can fulfill the law perfectly, but do this and live has the ring of the Torah. And uh, it's just kind of an interesting side note. So he says, leave one behind, just like Joseph had to be left behind from his family, and bring your youngest brother to me, 20, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, truly, now here's where it starts, right? Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. We saw his distress of his soul and now we have distress. And now they're going, uh-oh. Things are coming full circle. This is coming back on our head. One writer says, this is Walton, he says, we discover that in the 13 intervening years the guilt and recriminations experienced by Joseph's brothers have enslaved and imprisoned them no less than Joseph's chains had done to him, or probably more. What I'm saying is they may have been more in chains than he was. You know, but he didn't know that, but here they were, you know, they did this terrible deed, they did it in a moment of anger and jealousy and envy, and now they had a life of regret. 13 years. And remember, Joseph knows their language. So as they talk amongst themselves, they think that they're just talking to each other. But Joseph can understand what they're saying. And Reuben answered and said, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Now this is interesting. Because by saying the reckoning of his blood, it's Genesis 9-6. If you shed someone's blood, your blood should be shed an early teaching about capital punishment in the Bible, by saying his blood, does that mean Reuben thinks he's dead? Possibly. And he's saying, now is the time of reckoning has come. I told you guys, I pleaded with you. Now remember, Joseph hears. Now he knows that Reuben was not consenting with the plan. How many times did he revisit each brother's face and say, why? Why, Reuben? Why, Simeon? Why, Judah? Why? Now he knows one of the brothers was trying to save him. And a couple of them stepped up. I think Judah also stepped up at the time. But now he, he's hearing what they're talking about. He's seeing that their hearts are beginning to be revealed. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood 23. For there was an interpreter between them. The truth hurts. But there can be such a thing as healing pain. And sometimes, you know, have you been there before where you, you're in a church service or you're in your car, something's just gone wrong, you just made a bad move, a bad decision, said a negative thing, not responded spiritually, and something comes on and it just is like, <laughs> or Pastor Michael has a copy of my diary. He's got people following me during the week. 
We do. We actually do. We have people assigned to each of you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? And so the Holy Spirit says, speaks to them, and you're like, ow, oh, why did I go to church tonight? I was going to just go to Del Taco. <laughs> but the truth is, the pain or the conviction can bring healing. You see, unless you confront your sin, you're never going to really have a chance to deal with it. If your sin gets exposed, as, as uncomfortable as it is, it will lead you to healing. And sometimes it will lead you right back to the foot of the cross where we all need to be. And when Joseph heard all this stuff, he turned away from them and wept. Joseph could not contain himself anymore. But he didn't want them to see him cry. So some way he turned around or turned away or went behind something and he just began to weep. Because now he was finding out information that he didn't know. He didn't understand all these dynamics that were going on. And remember, when we replace something in our minds or something has gone wrong, we think the worst. There's typically no light there. Few of us think the best about you know, someone's intentions. And so he turned away and he wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon. By the way, Simeon's name is interesting. Simeon's name means God hears. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, much like Joseph was bound before the brother's eyes, now Simeon gets bound. And here, uh, he, you know, he does all of this in front of them. And now, here is their guilt and sorrow. And here is conviction. Sometimes we wonder in life, do those who have hurt us ever think about what they did to us? Do they have conviction and regret? We can't always know that answer. But after 13 long years, Joseph was uh, getting to see a little bit of God's grace. He was getting to see a little bit of what he didn't know about. One thing I can say to you, having gone through my share of pain, just like I'm sure all of you have, is that even when someone else may not feel regret or I never get the answer as to what they may feel, I know God cares. I know Jesus is my merciful and faithful high priest who was in all points tested as we yet without sin. I know he can empathize and sympathize. And often, uh, you know, because... Uh, we live this life and we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. He'll remind me and show me in little and big ways how faithful he is. God knows your pain. Uh, I, I've shared this before, but um, I'll say it again because it may benefit somebody. And this is not for, for me to play the victim because this is long behind me. But my dad bailed on our family when I was four. And uh, the secretary in the church office was on that Ancestry website. And she was doing a little research on her family. This is some years ago. And she said, hey, you can put anybody's name in here and find out what, you know, where they are and what's going on. And so I had her put my dad's name in there. And I hadn't talked to my dad in 30-some-odd years. And he had bailed on the family. I never saw him again. And it had said that uh, his name came up. And it had said that he had died three years before that. And, you know, as a, as a man, we all have these things in our past where you think, well, maybe one day my dad will decide to call me. And he may have another life, but, you know, maybe... There's some regret. But when I saw he was dead, and I quickly called my mom, his social security number was there. She verified it. My dad was dead. Gone. There are no, ch no second chances here. No opportunity to talk to him and find out his side of a story or what happened. 
it was over. You know, I couldn't do that, but God hears. God is the father of the fatherless and what? The defender of widows. James 5, 4, he says, Behold, the, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. God knows. God knows when people do you wrong. God hears. Simeon's name is beautifully woven here as God hears. And Simeon stays behind in the prison. Would, they, would the brothers hear God's voice? You know, once they got out of there and the, and the prison doors shut for Simeon, the brothers could have said, we ain't going back. Uh-uh, that dude's crazy. He's like number two Egyptian ruler and I don't care. I'm not going back. You see, this was a test too to see if they would go back and get Benjamin, which was going to be really tough to drop that one on dad. Uh, dad, <laughs> I got to update you on current situation. We got to bring Benjamin back and Simeon's there, right? You might want to just stay at a hotel for a few days and <laughs> decide which, which one of you is going to talk for the group, right? Well, all of a sudden now the test is before them. Will they come back for their brothers? Do they care? Have they changed? Well, these are all the issues that are before us. So Joseph gave orders, 25, to fill their bags with grain and restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And... Uh, Though they're going to talk about Joseph's actions later. Was it a gift, a mistake, a setup? And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And then he said to his brother, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Oh, no! We got our money back for the grain, right? Have you ever had gotten too much change from a place? And you thought, this is glorious. <laughs> An extra 20 bucks, right? And your little kids are with you that you take to Sunday school every week. Daddy, did he give you too much money? Quiet. <laughs> And you go back. So uh, again, not this is not a story about to puff me up, but but it comes to mind. So I uh, I turned a mower into a lawnmower shop, and I, I was at one of those points, and we've all probably been there. Those of us who do our own lawns, should I buy a new one or have this thing fixed? So I looked up a lawnmower repair shop, and uh, I went there and brought my mower, and I said, "What do you think? Oh, we can take care of this." The guy said he was. Great guy behind the counter. You know, people don't often even change the oil on these things. Oh, we'll fix it up. And so I said, how much? So we agreed on a price. And uh, I brought my credit card in when it was all done. I loaded the mower on my truck. And uh, he ran my credit card. I wasn't paying too much attention at the time. Signed everything. And I looked, and I realized that um, he had undercharged me for the price we had agreed. And so I was at the edge of the parking lot, just about to turn onto a main street, and I went, Hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like the Lord saying, turn around and go tell him. But Lord, I gotta... 
right? All your excuses. I turned around, went back into the motor shop, and I said, hey, sir, and he was having a hairy time. There was a lot of phone calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, hey, I, I think you undercharged me. And he went, what? And he, looked, and he went, oh, wow, thank you. He goes, how refreshing, thank you. And I said, well, sir, I, I kind of have to tell the truth. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I said, here's a card for the church. I pastor this church, so if you ever want, oh, we've been looking for a church, he said. In fact, we've been talking to our kids, and they've been encouraging us to get back in church. It's been a while, and thank you, we'll be there. You know, that couple is in one of the front rows in this church. Every Sunday, they can physically be here. And again, it's just God, and I was thinking, oh, you know, an extra, <laughs> whatever the money might be, right? It's nothing right? It's nothing. God wants us to do the right thing. So they saw the money, and they're like, oh, wow. God's hand is in this whole thing. This whole thing, Joseph's brothers realized that their sins were first and foremost against who? God against you and you only have I sinned, David said, Psalm 51. And when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man, he had, he had, all right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Where's Simeon? Okay, Dad, well, uh, the man, the Lord of the land, spark, spoke harshly with us, 30. He took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. Dad went, <laughs> right? Anyway, we are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were uh, emptying their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All things are against me. Ever had one of those days? The NIV puts it well. Everything is against me. You guys are against me. Everything is against me. Maybe implied in this, God is against me. Sometimes we don't want to say it right. But you know what? Jacob, God is not against you. He's for you. In fact, he's been weaving together a plan to save the nation by, that will bear your name, Israel. If you only knew what God was doing, sometimes here we are, everything is against me. And God's going, oh, Jacob, no, I'm working. But look, we all have those moments when circumstances are overwhelming. Can you relate? Have you had a week like that, a month like that, a year like that? Can I tell you, dear saint, God is not against you. He's for you. Romans chapter 8. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But Joseph still had to face what he faced. Jacob did. Then Reuben spoke to his father and he said, you may put my two sons to death. I don't know if they were standing there. <laughs> what? <laughs> if I do not bring him back to you, 
Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Dad is just like broken. Jacob's mention of his gray hair indicates the toll that his grief and sorrow had taken upon his life. But all of Jacob's gray hairs were unnecessary because Joseph was alive. But all Jacob knew was the story that his lying sons had told him. And so for some 13 years, the gray hairs flowed and he was stressed. We have a brother in our fellowship. He's a dear brother. You turn to Philippians 4 and we're done. And he says, you see every one of these gray hairs? I've earned every one of them. Philippians 4. And all God's people said, if you have any gray hair, all God's people said, I color it. <laughs> Just kidding. Nah. Philippians 4. You know, as we conclude this this chapter, and we'll pick it up next time. Look, we do do some unnecessary worrying, don't we? We probably all have our share of missing hair, gray hair, whatever, however it manifests itself, because we're not sure that we always can trust God. Amen? And we're in circumstances and seasons and years, and we go, Man, I know these promises, but, oh. And Jacob did all that worrying and all that mourning. And look, this is all he had to go on. But, but God was, his providence was over it all. Here's what the Bible says. We conclude with this. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Paul's, by the way, writing from prison. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoice, rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned, the Greek word here is by a process of learning, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Can you say it with me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, uh, thank you for this word tonight. We all need it. Um, we thank you for Joseph's test because it's such real life stuff. It's what we all deal with, our humanity, sometimes our weakness of faith, and sometimes circumstances just are overwhelming, and we don't, we don't see the big picture. We can go back and read Genesis, but 
None of these guys really had the big picture. Joseph had his dreams, but he didn't have everything. But he had you. And you were blessing and guiding and protecting. And, and Father, there, there's different stories in the room tonight about what the saints are going through. And I just pray you'd minister to their need right now and reassure them that you're on the throne. Sprinkle your grace. Pour it out on their lives, Lord. Encourage them in areas where they feel weak and vulnerable. Help them to give back to you or give over to you things that worry them, even sins that so easily entangle. And help us to run this race with endurance. And if we need to, to refix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that Jesus, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, you despised the shame. And you did it for me and the honor of your Father. With your head and heart bowed, if you need to recommit your life to Christ tonight, you need to just lift up your hands and release things to him in this final song. Or if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, cry out to him and just say, Jesus, save me. I want to know you. I repent of my sin and I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me for the wrongs that I've done. and Make me a new man or a new woman in Christ. It's in Jesus' name I thank you and I believe in your death and your resurrection and all that you are, all that the Bible says you are. If you're opening your heart right now, he'll be faithful to save you. If you're rededicating, he'll be faithful to touch you. If you need a miracle tonight, he's the God of miracles. Just, just place your faith firmly in him and ask him to pour out what you need tonight. Lord, thank you. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you stand?